Thanks to Bombfell for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. It's Wednesday, October 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in a studio... Not our usual studio, a different studio. We're shaking it up. We're, sh- we're shaking it up. <clears throat> That's David Kretzman from Supernova and Rule Breakers. We're shaking it up because we literally just flew in from South Carolina. We we're down there for the one event yep. and uh, went from the airport straight to Full HQ so we could come to the studio and uh, talk, ab- talk about a couple things in the news. And while we were flying, Richard Smith the recently former CEO of Equifax was hanging out with his good friends at the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. I'm pretty sure our day is going better than his. Uh, Yes. Whatever else is going on with our day and with your day, wherever you're listening, it's better than Richard Smith. I loved. What did you say at the airport that his defense was going to be? It reminded me of a line that Homer tells Marge in season nine of The Simpsons. He says, "Marge, I swear to you, I never thought you'd find out." Yeah, <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it with Equifax. <laughs> um, we're going to get to Shopify in a second, but I, I wanted to start with uh, something I saw uh, while we were at the airport, and just sort of we were all on our phones and scrolling through Twitter and that sort of thing. And it was it was a comment that Bob Iger, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, made in reference to BamTech, uh, which Disney bought a majority stake in, and it was something to the effect of, "Yeah, we thought about buying Twitter. Disney thought about buying Twitter before they bought BamTech." And my, I don't know about your reaction when you saw that, but my gut reaction was not positive. Because it just kind of seemed like a little bit of a floundering move. Like we feel like we need to buy something, and whereas the BamTech acquisition, at least on paper, appears to make a lot of sense and right in line with what they're trying to do with streaming. If they bought Twitter, even though they were always mentioned as one of those companies that could buy Twitter, along with Apple and Amazon and Google and everyone else, I, I don't know what. I should just stop and talking and finish my question. What was your first reaction when you saw that? Yeah, I think my first reaction is I'm glad that they didn't because yeah. I don't I don't think Twitter would fit into the whole Disney flywheel or ecosystem nearly as well as BamTech will. I think BamTech will. I, I I think if we look 15 years out today and look back on the acquisitions that happened under Bob Iger's tenure, I think there's a good chance BamTech will be seen as the most consequential. Acquisition that he made out of Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, and I say that because those acquisitions didn't actually change the business model of Disney. They fit into what Disney was already really good at doing, but BamTech has the potential to actually change how Disney distributes its content, and interacts with its users. Because it's uh, over the next couple of years, we'll be launching uh, these direct-to-consumer ESPN and Disney apps. And they'll have that direct relationship with consumers, which fundamentally shifts how the company has operated largely since its founding. So I think, from that perspective, BamTech really has that potential to make a, a huge transformation for the company. It won't happen overnight, certainly, but I think looking out over the next one or two decades, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. 
And Twitter, I yeah, when I look at Twitter, I, I just don't see it fitting into that Disney ecosystem nearly as well. It's also a much heftier price tag than what Disney has spent on BAMTech. I think it's maybe three or four billion cumulative up to this point, maybe even less than that, that Disney has spent to acquire 75% of BAMTech over the past couple of years. And Twitter, you would be spending well over $10 billion for that acquisition. And I think there are just more question marks with how <laughs> Twitter fits into what Disney is doing and how it actually helps Disney get to where it needs to go as far as streaming offerings direct to consumer faster than what Disney was doing on its own. So my my first reaction is I'm glad they didn't go that route. Yeah, I, I had a similar thought. And I think that of course we will never know because this is a hypothetical, but I think if in fact Disney had bought Twitter, a lot of people, and I I would probably be among them, would give Bob Iger the benefit of the doubt simply because his other acquisitions have worked out so well, even though, as you rightly point out, they didn't change the business model of Disney. Hmm. So, I'm, yeah, I hope, I'm glad we didn't find out. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to learn more about what that whole process looked like. Because there, there, I do remember the rumors last summer, and I was just thinking to myself then, gosh, I really hope, I hope they can do better than that. And I think BAMTech was a relatively under the radar, you know, opportunity at, at that point. And I, I think uh, D- Disney going that route, to me, I, I'm happy with how, how they how they approached that whole acquisition because they didn't go all in at once. They initially bought a third, and then they just recently upped their stake to 75. percent So they kind of were dipping their toe in the water. They weren't going all in with anything. And I think if they had acquired all of Twitter, that yeah, that le- leaves a lot of room for error. Shares of Shopify. Not very much room for error, sorry. Not very much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shares of Shopify down 11% today. Uh, Citron Research came out uh, to say a couple of things, including that uh, Citron is shorting the stock. They called uh, Shopify, the Canadian e commerce company, a get rich quick scheme, uh, said it was worse than Herbalife. That's, which a, is, that's a strong statement. Yes. Yes, as someone who has watched on a couple of occasions the excellent documentary Betting on Zero, which is about Herbalife, I, I, I was I was stunned by this. Yeah, yeah, this really came out of nowhere. And Citron, they they get some stuff right, like they they have gone after 3D Systems, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, GoPro, and those turn out to be good short calls. Uh, but they've also gone after Ubiquity Networks lately, which seems a little bit questionable to me. Um, yeah, I, 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 NVIDIA was another one earlier this year that they went after. So I, I take everything that comes out from Citron or really any short seller with a grain of salt because uh, they, they certainly have an agenda. And I wouldn't let uh, a report from a short seller necessarily deter my investing thesis because oftentimes a short seller will have a shorter time horizon, no pun intended. Uh, and, and you can still you can still have good results as a long-term foolish investor with a company, even if uh, along the way there's short sellers who jump on with a company. Like I'm thinking of Keurig Green Mountain, which uh, over the over the past several years, at, at one point the, the share price just got absolutely hammered, and people were saying that the company is a fraud. And lo and behold, it went on to become a multi-bagger from there. So. It is interesting, though, to see what Citron is going after Shopify for. They're they're really going after some of Shopify's marketing tactics, and then also just questioning the validity of what Shopify considers their customers. So, 
uh, Citron highlighted some uh, ads on Facebook and uh, on the web that Shopify puts out there, and they some of the ads will say something along the lines of, you can become a Facebook millionaire today by opening up a shop or a store on Shopify. And that's where they were start, sort of drawing some similarities to Herbalife, which obviously has kind of been uh, under, the micro, under the microscope of, of the FTC lately just for their, their marketing practices and essentially making claims uh, that you, know, you can become a millionaire, you can make a lot of money, you can quit your job by working for Herbalife. And I think he's trying to draw a similarity between Shopify's marketing tactics and Herbalife's marketing tactics in that regard. But I'm not a legal expert, so who knows? Uh, but Citron did say that they're going to forward their extensive research over to the FTC. And I'll be curious to see how Shopify responds to this. Uh, and I think you can learn a lot about a company and its leadership by how they respond to uh, to a short attack like this. But Another area that Citron was going after, Shopify, was looking at their customer base. So right now, uh, Shopify has about half a million customers or merchants. These are people who subscribe to Shopify and they set up an online store through Shopify's software platform. Of those 500,000 merchants, roughly 2,500 are plus clients. Those are large companies like GE, Procter & Gamble, Nestle that are using Shopify's platform to kind of bolster their direct-to-consumer web offerings or their web stores. Then there's another 20,000 or so estimated advanced merchants who are essentially paying the, the high end of Shopify's different tiered pricing options. And Citron was basically saying, okay, what about the other 450,000 customers? Like, who are they? And are they people who are being duped by Shopify's marketing, setting up stores, uh, doing an initial marketing push to sell the products on their stores, and then are those stores eventually fizzling out? Uh, Sh- Shopify has been growing incredibly quickly. Uh, they, they had 84,000 merchants in 2013, and now they're up to 500,000 just several years later. So they're, they're growing very quickly, but the company doesn't disclose their churn rate. So we don't know how many of those, uh, how many of those merchants today are people who have been with the platform uh, for several years, how many, how many people are sticking with the platform over time. For a subscription business like Shopify, I, I would prefer that management lets us know what, what the churn rate is. How well are they retaining customers? And and but but, clear, but clearly, it is in Shopify's long term interest to have stores that do well over time. If you're just having these uh, kind of fire sale stores that set up shop for three or six months and then fizzle out, that that's not going to benefit Shopify, which needs that subscription revenue. So anyway, a long rambling answer um, to say that I'm I'm interested to see how Shopify responds to this. If the FTC does indeed go after Shopify or investigate it, but at this point, I wouldn't this wouldn't this report alone wouldn't cause me to sell shares if I was a Shopify shareholder. So a couple of listeners uh, getting in touch with us about this, uh, Mark in San Francisco, asking you know, a few questions sort of under the umbrella of, who are these people at Citron Research and why does anyone listen to them? And, is, and I think part of that is, you know, yes, as he points out, they, they have a biased opinion. Yeah, they have, they have uh, a short on the stock. And they have enough of a track record, as you said, with Valiant, with a couple others, that people take that seriously. They don't have a perfect track record, just as people who go long on stocks don't have a perfect track record. Uh, Sam Muffley, longtime listener, asking, hey, is is the stock on sale? It's down 11%. Should I be opening a position here? And 
to that, one of the things I would say is, or really to everyone is, even with this move today, even with the stock dropping 11%, it is still up over 140% for the year. So, at least some of the selling that we're seeing today is probably people who look at the positive results of Citron Research and say, you know what, I'm I'm out, or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna short this thing too. Um, some might just be people who say, you know what, I've held Shopify for a while and I've done quite well, and I'm taking at least a little bit of money off the table. Uh, and again, with that rise for a company like Shopify, uh, which is is still not profitable, am I right on that? Not profitable. Yeah. So I mean, a, a pretty even with the drop, kind of a hefty valuation, considering it's not. Profitable. Yeah, the expectations are still very high for Shopify. And if you're a Shopify shareholder today or, or looking at today's drop as a potential buying opportunity, you should have an idea of what you're getting into. The company, even after today's drop, is still valued at over $10 billion, trading for over 18 times trailing revenue. They, they do have over $930 million in cash on the balance sheet and no debt, and that's primarily through issuing shares from the IPO a couple years ago, and then they've done, I believe, two uh, secondary offerings where they're essentially selling more stock. So, they have been taking advantage of this seemingly perpetually rising share price to raise more capital and uh, strengthen the balance sheet with a lot of cash. So, they're not in danger of going under anytime soon or anything. They have a lot of cash to work with, but that is a very hefty valuation for a company that hasn't proven yet that it can be profitable or generate cash just through the underlying fundamentals of the business. So, there, there certainly are, you know, some people might call Shopify recently anyway, a momentum stock where a lot of people see, oh, this thing is just skyrocketing. I'm going to jump in. And people who have been buying Shopify might not necessarily have, you know, a three to five year uh, time horizon in mind. They might just be looking to, to capture that momentum, more of the trading mentality. And it's not uncommon for short sellers to go after companies like that. Like the, the 3D systems, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, GoPro, some of the success stories with Citron. At, at one point, you might have said that there's irrational exuberance with all those companies where the, the share price just was kind of disconnected from the underlying fundamentals. Of course, sometimes a high valuation is warranted and that excitement is warranted if that company can become uh, stronger and more profitable in time. But uh, it, it's it's not uncommon for short sellers to go after a scenario like this. Then also for additional context, you know the stock is down over ten percent today, but the stock is back to where it was at the end of August. <laughs> so so it's like okay, if you're looking at today's share price as an opportunity, why weren't you looking at it as an opportunity at the end of August? And often it, it can just be a weird psychological quirk for us, where it's a lot easier to buy something that's dropped yes. rather than something that's gone up eighty or ninety percent over the prior. Eight or nine months in the case of where Shopify was trading at $103 at the end of August, where it's now trading today. So I wouldn't, I still have some questions about Shopify. Like there's clearly a lot to like there. You have a founder, CEO, Toby Luke K, who still owns a fair number of shares, a company that's growing incredibly quickly, getting these new merchants onto its platform. But yeah, I think there are still questions about, okay, how sustainable is that growth? What, what, is the underlying what is the retention rate of the people who are signing up with Shopify? How successful are those stores? For for context, there I, I thought the Citron report didn't give a whole lot of um, clarity of the market opportunity for Shopify because 
500,000 merchants on its platform. That sounds like a big number, but there are close to 30 million uh, small businesses in the U.S. alone. And Shopify is a global company. So, when you look globally at the type of companies or merchants that Shopify goes after, there's probably 50 million or so total merchants within Shopify's addressable market. So, I'm not as concerned there that they're somehow fudging (laughs) the numbers somehow or Going after merchants in an unsustainable way, but it will be interesting to hear how how Shopify de- defends their practices and if anything changes one way or another. All right, we're going to get to South Carolina in a second, but first, got to say thanks to Bombfell. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. It's an easier way to get better clothes, and I'm totally in favor of that because I hate shopping for clothes. It is among the worst things possible for me to do. Same for me. <laughs> and Bombfell does all the work. They make it really easy. You just go to bombfell.com slash fool. You fill out a simple questionnaire, and then you're matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece. Your stylist emails you a preview of the selections, and then you have 48 hours to make any changes or even just cancel altogether. You're in complete control. And then Bombfell ships you the selected clothes, and you have seven days to decide if you want to keep them, and you only pay for what you keep. You send the rest back, and it's free shipping both ways, and that's it. The stuff is shipped right to your door, so you don't have to spend hours at the store, which, again, is soul-crushing for me. Oh, yeah. Now, this sounds like a much more convenient <laughs> and pleasant option. Much more convenient. And, and I have to say, the uh, having gone through the online process, filling out the, the questionnaires, completely easy, so simple. The stylist nailed my items, and uh, actually, the shirt I'm wearing right now is uh, is something I got from Bombfell. And you're looking sharp. Thank you. And you can say that because it's an audio podcast, and no one right. can actually see. But it is a good looking shirt. It's Take my one, word for it. It is one of those where, like, you know, my wife and daughters are like, "Dad, that looks good," and you know, with a little tone of surprise, like, "Hey." How did you manage to pick out that shirt? I'm like, hey, no, I'm not telling you. <laughs> we got a special offer for our dozens of listeners. $25 off your first purchase. Go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool for $25 off your first purchase. We were down in South Carolina. We had an all-day investing conference for members of the Motley Fool One service. There were main stage presentations. There were breakout sessions. Um, I, I don't know if I know Shopify came up in conversation with a bunch of members that I was talking to, but uh, a somewhat competitor, on some levels, came up on a main stage presentation that you and I were involved with because you were talking about Stamps.com. Yeah, yeah, I'd say they're they're probably more complementary than anything else. But okay. the the way I look at Stamps.com is it's a I think it's an opportunity for investors to benefit from the same tailwinds that that are uh, really driving Shopify success. But Stamps.com, I mean, you just hear the name and you kind of step back a little bit. Like, wait, seriously, there's a company named that in 2017? And I mean, it's really, uh, yeah, a love child of 1999. Yeah, or something. it really does <laughs> scream dot bomb era. Right, and and they, yeah, they were founded toward the end of the 1990s, and they were they started out as a PC postage vendor. So they essentially gave small offices and small mid-sized businesses, home offices, the the chance to print postage directly at home rather than having to take all your mail or packages to the post office and wait in line for 45 minutes. Uh, they, they still have the same name, but but the, the business has really transformed quite a bit the past several years. Um, management has made several acquisitions of companies like Shipping Easy or ShipStation, which really provides a one-stop shop software platform where these small businesses 
can manage their their incoming orders, uh, their their shipping process for not just the USPS but also FedEx, DHL, UPS, all the different shipping and logistics providers. So it just it gives those merchants a way to manage everything in one place. A very convenient solution. You can find the best um, uh, the best shipping deals depending on the carrier, depending on the product, the weight, different things like that. So oftentimes, people who set up a Shopify store, for instance, they'll need if they're selling something successfully, which is obviously what the the merchants wants, what Shopify wants, they'll need to ship those products somehow. And uh, Stamps.com will integrate with Shopify's software platform, so it's really almost like a plug-in to Shopify or Big Commerce or some of those other um, e-commerce software platforms. Uh, so, but like I mentioned, Stamps.com just hasn't gotten the same level of attention, even though it's grown uh, really nicely. It's still under a four billion dollar company. Uh, the valuation is, I think, more uh, is more reasonable than uh, Shopify. The price to sales ratio is under ten. The company has a long track record of profitability, generating their own free cash flow. It's also a founder led company, so it has a lot of the the characteristics that I think people like about Shopify. But it it doesn't have the same flash or sex appeal <laughs> that Shopify has had. <laughs> <laughs> the past couple of years, and honestly, I kind of like that. That a company, you know, called Stamps.com uh, can be uh, turning heads uh, all of a sudden. So, so the way the way I look at it essentially is, you know, Stamps.com right now they have about seven hundred thousand customers on their platform. Uh, so they have even more than than Shopify's five hundred thousand right now. And again, I think Stamps.com they can go after that same addressable market of the 30 million or so small to mid-sized businesses in the U.S. And they're also increasingly going after higher volume shippers or warehouse shippers. Uh, and as they're doing that, as they're going after those uh, kind of larger customers, they're seeing their retention rates increase, their average revenue per user increase. So, it's, that's a nice combination uh, for a subscription business. So, I was looking at, yeah, at Stamps.com as kind of a hidden alternative to, to Shopify. For people who might look at Shopify, they they find a lot of it appealing, but maybe that price tag is still a little hard for you to jump in. And I think Stamps.com could be an alternative or maybe just a complement to a Shopify holding in your portfolio. One of uh, the highlights for me at uh, the event in South Carolina was the chance to talk to Derek Thompson, who's uh, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he is the author of a really interesting book called The Hitmakers. Best-selling book, The Hitmakers, and sort of delving into the science of popularity, and I was thinking of that when we were talking earlier about Disney and the business model of Disney and distribution, because that one of the things Derek Thompson said was, and this is something he writes about in his book, is content is king, but distribution is the kingdom, and the idea that well, great content will always win out is actually not true at all, because distribution is, is so much more important in a lot of ways than just having great content. But anyway, that's, um, that's an interview. We're actually going to run part of that interview on uh, Motley Fool Money this weekend. So, nice. Um, yeah, it was a great interview. For me, that was one of the, the highlights of our time in South Carolina. Obviously, a lot of highlights, a lot of great presentations and interviews. But yeah, Derek Thompson is definitely someone I recommend following. He recently had an article in The Atlantic that, that you talked about a little bit in the interview, basically looking at how Amazon is following a similar playbook to Sears over a hundred years ago, which yes. is something I that that blew my mind. It kind, that. it kind of blew my mind too, because even though I remember when Sears was a very dominant retailer, the parallels between the growth of Sears, really starting at the turn of the twentieth century and through the twentieth century, mirror 
what Amazon has done over the last 20 years to a, a scarily uh, close degree. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, Sears started out as a mail-order business. They didn't start with brick-and-mortar stores. Right. They, they started off with watches. Amazon started off and with I, books. And by the way, I, I don't know how I missed that, but I, I, yeah. I never, <laughs> at no point did I ever realize that Sears started out selling one item and only one item, and it was watches. This is why guys like Derek Thompson are just incredible, and it's well worth following them because, man, they are smarter, certainly, than I ever will be. And, uh, yeah, I, I highly encourage uh, listening to, to that interview. And to your point about content and distribution. I know David Gardner on Rule Breaker Investing, or um, one of our other podcasts, he, he also mentions that he thinks content is king is almost an overrated statement, or people bank on that a little bit too much, because part of the success of Netflix was, sure, having access to the great content or eventually creating their own content, but distribution is a huge reason why Netflix has... The, reached the level of success um, that it has today. So, yeah, you, d- you don't want to bank too much on one or the other. Having, if you can have both of those, then, then you have the, the really dynamic uh, companies of our time. Safe to assume we ate well in South Carolina? We did, although I'm gluten-free and vegetarian, and, and that, <sighs> that's, that's not yeah. ideal for, for the South. But no, the, the South is always you know, welcoming and So, you know, shrimp hospitable. and grits, not so much for you? I did the grits, but not, not the shrimp. Okay. And, you know, so, I, I still ate very well, but I ate different than I think most people assume when, when they go to the South. But what, what was your favorite meal, Chris? Oh, the shrimp and grits that yeah. we had that first night was just, uh, yeah, as I was saying to you and, and Dan Boyd before, as we were uh, coming back here from the airport, the, uh, it, it, the probably good in the long run, but in the short run, I was I was a little disappointed. It was when I was looking at the shrimp and grits on the table, and it was the a fam, It was a staff dinner, and it was family style, so huge platters of, of food around. And I was eyeing the shrimp and grits and thinking to myself, you know what? I am gonna have thirds. And Why then, not? And then that was when uh, one of the wait staff came around and said, "Can I clear the, your plate?" and my smarter angels in my head said, yeah, you can. You can clear my plate. Because you know what? Nobody needs thirds of shrimp and grits. As great as it tastes, you don't need it. We'll go back to Charleston sometime and yeah, like make it. it happen. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.